Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au We now come to the conclusion of our journey through the book of Joshua. And in Joshua's chapter 23 and the chapter 24, which we did not read, we come full circle. In Joshua chapter 1, Joshua, after Moses' death, has been called by Yahweh to lead the Israelites across the Jordan into the promised land of Canaan. And as Israel's leader, Joshua finds himself as a worthy successor of Moses. Joshua, in many ways, his life is very similar to Moses. Both men lead the Israelites across an uncrossable body of water. Both men have encounters with Yahweh, which require their shoes to be removed. Both of them hold up an object during a battle to ensure their victory. Both men build an altar before Yahweh. And just before his death, like Moses, Joshua now gathers the people together to give one final address. And Joshua's chapter 23 and chapter 24 are these final instructions to the Israelites. But unlike Moses' death, Joshua has no successor to lead the people. The Israelites are now responsible themselves for ensuring the obedience of the Torah, or they will suffer grave consequences. And in Joshua chapter 23, Joshua reminds the people of the numerous promises that Yahweh has given and how each and every one of them have been fulfilled. But then Joshua warns the people quite clearly, they are not to have relationships with the neighbours around them, especially the gods they serve. For if they go down this path, there will be terrible consequences. And in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua gathers the tribes of Israel at a place called Shechem. And there he recounts Yahweh's words to the people. The history from Abraham. Oh, I'm not sure what's happened there. Look at that. Oh, oh well, this is why technology sometimes just fails. Anyway, we'll just leave it as that. Okay, anyway, Joshua gathers the people and he recounts Yahweh's words from Abraham right to the events that have just happened in Canaan. Now, from a historical perspective, Shechem is a very, very important place. For it is at Shechem where Yahweh promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. But it's also at Shechem where Abraham's grandson Jacob tells his household to remove the gods that are in their midst and they bury them under an oak tree. Now, in light of standing here at this place of Shechem, Joshua challenges the Israelites in a similar way to throw away all the idols they themselves possess. And he gives them an option. Either they serve Yahweh or they serve the other idols and gods. And shockingly, 
Joshua tells the people that they're incapable of serving Yahweh, despite the people's insistence. And he makes a covenant with them. And he sets up a stone in front of an oak tree. And this stone right before Joshua's death is a sign of a witness to their declaration. And it's also a sign as a witness for their failure in the future. Now, compared to Joshua chapter 1, which began full of optimism, of Yahweh's presence being with Joshua, or wherever Joshua would step, there he would possess the land. Now, in Joshua's chapter 23 and 24, there's a decidedly more grim ending. For we know as the reader, the Israelites will not remain obedient to the commands of Yahweh. Despite Joshua and Moses' death, their laws, their commands and the laws of the Torah are still to be obeyed. And these final chapters, there are a preview for what is to come. In the remainder of the former prophets, especially its conclusion at the end of 2 Kings. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Joshua chapter 23. I would have had all the writings on the screen, but anyway, technology doesn't work. And in Joshua chapter 23, we're told that after an unspecified amount of time, following Joshua's tribal allotments, we learn that Yahweh has given rest from all her enemies. The nations still remain in the land, but they're not actively seeking to destroy the Israelites. Now, this concept of rest in the land is an important theological concept to grasp. For since the seventh day back in Eden, it has been God's intention for humanity to dwell on the earth in rest. Now, rest does not mean an absence of work. It does not mean lounging around in idleness. The root word for rest is nuah which means peace from warfare, the cessation of sorrow or burdensome labour. But the true theological significance of rest is actually being in the presence of Yahweh. Walter Kaiser argues that rest is found wherever Yahweh's presence is dwelling, either in the tabernacle or either in the temple. Thus, by the Israelites experiencing rest in the land, they themselves are experiencing a new Eden. It is Eden 2.0. However, future rest in Canaan is at risk, for Joshua is now very old and he is now close to death. And for the first time since the Israelites have escaped from Egypt, the Israelites now are going to be Leaderless. There will be no specific leader who will be called up who will directly communicate with Yahweh. And in this new leaderless era, the people now must be responsible for their spiritual direction. And in his opening verse, in his opening address from verse 3, Joshua reinforces it is Yahweh's intention for there to be rest in the land. 
Despite not using the word rest, Joshua is assuring the Israelites that Yahweh's intention is for the Israelites to remain in the land and for his presence to be there. For as the conquest of the Canaanites has highlighted, Yahweh is fighting for the Israelites. He is driving out the nations and he will continue to do this. For by removing the nations from the land, it will ensure the rest of the land. However, just because rest is happening right now, the Israelites cannot assume that rest will continue in the future. Rest may be a sign of Yahweh's presence, but Yahweh's presence can only remain if the people are obedient, if the people are holy. Therefore, in order to ensure that they remain in the land, the people need to be strong and to obey all that is written in the Torah. They're not to turn to the left. They're not to turn to the right. They are to remain focused and straight on everything that has been written down. And most importantly, they are not to intermingle with the nations around them and their God. In fact, when it comes to their gods, they're not even to mention their names. They're not to swear by them, serve them, or bow down to them. And why does Joshua emphasize so much about the nations? It's about keeping the Israelites ethnically pure, of not allowing any cross-mixing of cultures? Well, no. As the book of Joshua has already showed us, Rahab the Canaanite and her family, outsiders, are welcomed inside the Israelites. And on the flip side, Achan, who is originally an insider, becomes an outsider by disobedience. What the Old Testament does for us, it presents us with two categories of people. Either those who worship Yahweh and follow his commands, Israelites. All those that disobey Yahweh and his commands, the nations. And it's the responsibility of the Israelites to ensure that they can continue to experience the rest of the land, to avoid assimilating to the culture around them. And while the concept of speaking the name of a God or swearing by a God just seems so irrelevant to us as modern Westerners, In the ancient Near East, to speak the name of a god or to swear by it was to accept the power of that god for yourself. To invoke its name was to tap into its power and authority. Now, admittedly, for the Israelites, there is a great attraction to worshipping the idols of the other nations. We take, for instance, the practices of the worship of Baal. Baal, who was the chief god of the pantheon of Canaanite gods, was also the storm god or the rain god. In order to ensure rain fell upon the land of Canaan, the Canaanites believed that Baal would have incestuous sex with his sister Anon. And the rain that fell from the sky was Baal's semen fertilizing the land. So in order to ensure that rain fell in the land, it was important that you had ritual sex at one of the sites of Baal. 
So there was not only this temptation, well, when there's lack of rain, I could do, I could do this Baal practice and ensure rain. There was also the human sinful desire of having your flesh, fleshly lust met. And what's remarkable about the Israelites, which we fail to comprehend, is that they worshipped one God. In a society which saw that every aspect of life was determined by a god or a goddess, here comes Yahweh who says that he fulfills every role of the gods. This belief in one God in a world which believed in many gods is this unique marker for the Israelites. Rest is found in worship of the one true God. Joshua's exhortation to hold fast or to literally cling to Yahweh. Now, this word cling, dorbach, at its root, it describes the soldering process when you take an, like metal and join it together and sold it. So it's joined up and it cannot be separated. And the most popular, most famous use of this term comes from Genesis chapter 2, 24, in relation to marriage. Husbands are meant to cling to their wives in this unbreakable union. This is what Joshua is saying to people. Their relationship with Yahweh is to be like this unbreakable marriage that cannot be torn apart. If Israel clings to Yahweh, things will go well. But if they cling to the foreign idols, things will go poorly. In fact, Yahweh promises if they cling to him, one soldier will be able to rout a thousand of them. No one will be able to stand before the Israelites. And if this is the case, if clinging to Yahweh produces the rest and the promises and the prosperity of the land, then they must be very careful to love God. For if the Israelites cling to Yahweh, things will go well. But if they cling to the nations, things will go poorly. For Yahweh will stop driving the nations out. The tribes that are waiting to receive their inheritance will fail to get them. And eventually, the nations will become a snare, a trap, a whip, and a thorn in their eyes. The nations become so anti-rest that it will result in the land vanishing from the Israelites entirely as they are expelled just as the Canaanites have been expelled by the Israelites. Now, to avoid this terrible fate, Joshua implores the people to remember with the knowledge in their hearts and in their souls that not a single word of Yahweh has failed. And he says here from verse 15, but just as all the good things that, the, that Yahweh your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that Yahweh your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant 
of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Now, unlike the English language, it only has a few words for anger. Hebrew is much more colourful. Now, when Joshua says that Yahweh will be angry, the word he uses is af, which means nostril, nose, face, or breath. And it creates this amazing picture of seeing Yahweh's nostrils flaring in anger as he burns against the practices that the Israelites will do if they're disobedient. And as their practices spiral out and out of control, his nostrils flare bigger and bigger, and the intensity of his heat will burn more and more, right until that moment when the land is taken from them. Now in chapter 24, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, in response to this grim prediction, Joshua gathers all the tribes at Shechem in order to renew the covenant, to ensure that the Israelites will continue to remain obedient, to avoid this terrible fate. And as part of his address, Joshua quotes directly from Yahweh himself. Yahweh recounts how long ago their ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates River and Abraham's father, Terah, worshipped other gods. Now, taking Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and into the land of Canaan, Abraham, uh, Yahweh recounts how Abraham, he, would, he promised Abraham he would give him many offspring. And Yahweh's historical recollection traces the history down through Egypt, through the wilderness wanderings, overcoming Balaam's curse, the crossing of the Jordan, and the conquest that has happened in Canaan. And Yahweh concludes his speech with these words in verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not laboured, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Point is, when the people come into the land, they experience all these wonderful blessings which they did not work for. However, despite all the blessings that Yahweh has given, Joshua recognized that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If Abraham's father, Ahor, had excuse me, had worshipped other gods. And Joshua recognises that the people themselves are continuing to worship the gods their ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt. Commentator Trent Butler notes that Israel's ancestors and the Egyptian generation are charged with false worship. Just think about that for a moment. That's a terrifying implication. For we can understand their ancestors beyond the Euphrates worshipping other idols. But the Egyptian generation? The implication is that the Israelites have never truly worshipped Yahweh as he is meant to be. And Joshua gives them a simple choice. If it seems evil to serve Yahweh, then go and serve the gods of your ancestors or the gods in the land. 
or choose Yahweh. And there's a, as I mentioned earlier, there is a historical significance at this moment with the people at Shechem. For it was at Shechem that some 500 years ago that Abraham was promised that his descendants would inherit the land. And it was at Shechem where Jacob challenged his household to rid themselves of their idols. The choice is crystal clear. His household will wholeheartedly worship Yahweh. And the people, they also agree, we will also serve Yahweh. He is our God. But then shockingly, in verse 19, Joshua responds, you are not able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And it's a twist that we're not expecting. For the purpose of Joshua's farewell, to gather all the people, has been to avoid this fate, to avoid the people slipping into disobedience. But Joshua recognized they are incapable of doing this. They are just like their ancestors who worshipped the false gods. And the terrifying thing Joshua notes is when they do this, there will be no forgiveness. Only harm will consume them. Another commentator, David Howard, argues the reason for this failure is simple. Yahweh is a holy God. Yahweh is a jealous God. These are the defining characteristics of who Yahweh is. His holiness permeates everything. Everywhere he goes, a place must be holy. And as the chosen people, they themselves must be holy in every action they do, big or small. And the other thing is, Yahweh is jealous. Not that negative jealousy of an over-possessive boyfriend or husband, but jealous like a lover, like any normal spouse would feel anger at being cheated on. Yahweh is the same. He does not tolerate his people committing adultery. Trent Butler again notes the core problem with the temptation to follow the other gods. Simply, they make fewer demands than Yahweh does on his people. For the gods are a lot more forgiving, a lot more willing to accept a compromised lifestyle. Nevertheless, the people are adamant. They declare to Joshua that they will serve Yahweh. And holding them to account, Joshua declares, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Yahweh to serve him. And if they're willing to serve Yahweh, then they, like Jacob's household so many years ago, must throw away their foreign Gods. But here's an even more disturbing element, which Richard Hess notes, is that each time Joshua gives a specific command in the book, the narrator tells us that the Israelites followed through with that command. However, in this moment, there is no mention of the Israelites going out 
and burying their idols or burning them. All they do is just affirm their earlier promise to serve Yahweh. The implication? They swear saying, we swear to serve Yahweh. But deep down, they're holding on to foreign gods. Now, despite this, Joshua makes a covenant with the people where he outlines all the statues and rules that they are to follow. And the visible sign of this covenant agreement is he places a stone under an oak tree. And this stone functions as a silent witness to this agreement that the Israelites have entered. And if you remember throughout our journey in Joshua, stones have played a significant role at key events. It was in the crossing of the Jordan that 12 stones were made into a memorial for that moment. It was at Achan's death that a stone memorial was laid over his body and his family's. Stones were used by Joshua to write a copy of the Torah at Mount Gerizim. And stones were used to cover the five kings that were hiding in a cave. And these stones, they remember Yahweh's great deeds. But they also serve as a reminder of the consequences of disobedience. And in the years to come, that stone by that oak tree is a grim witness to the covenant violations that the Israelites will do, which results in the loss of rest and the loss of the land. And on that grim note, Joshua sends the people away to enjoy the land of their inheritance. Susan Ackerman argues that in biblical narrative, when a character is said to love another, it initiates an action for what is to follow. So, for instance, Jacob is told, we're told, loves Rachel. Therefore, it results in him serving her father, Lacham, for 14 years. The judge, Samson, with his misguided love for Delilah, results in him having his hair cut and losing his strength. Now, Joshua has challenged the Israelites to love Yahweh. Now, as readers, we are now expecting that love will drive the continuation of the narrative in the book of Judges. But all Judges highlights for us is that the people do not love Yahweh. They love foreign And the narrative concludes with Joshua dying at the age of 110, being buried in the land of his inheritance. And for his efforts in leading the Israelites, Joshua is awarded posthumously the title Servant of Yahweh, a title granted to Moses himself. Then the book also tells us right at the end there, the other key figure to die is Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the high priest. So we have here, with the death of these two men, the successor to both Moses and the high priest Aaron are dead. The next generation is now responsible for themselves. And while the conclusion of chapter 24 notes that the Israelites served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and witnessed all the wonderful events that Yahweh had done in the land, We are just anticipating now the failure of the Israelites. With the death of Joshua and Eliezer, 
it seems that Israel's godly past is now buried under the land. The only rest that is found is for those who have died. And just because Yahweh has granted rest and his enemies are in the land, it's not a contradiction. For rest does not negate obedience. For similarly, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve experienced rest on that seventh day, it did not mean that they lounged around idly. They were expected to work, to perform a task, to serve and protect that garden space, and to obey the single command that Yahweh had given, not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve failed this task to expel the evil from within the garden by listening to the serpent. Now Israel has inherited that role of Adam and Eve. And they're now in the new Eden, Canaan. And so so, um, with the nations now representing the evilness of the serpent, they, they too must be expelled. Rest does not imply idleness. Remember way back in Joshua chapter 1, Yahweh challenged Joshua to be strong and courageous. And as readers, we must constantly have in the back of our minds, well, are the Israelites strong enough? Are they courageous enough to follow the commands of Yahweh and Joshua? And as the same token as readers of Joshua, we must also ask the same question of ourselves. Am I strong enough? Am I courageous enough to follow the commands of God? Joshua's words are harsh, but they're realistic. For had we been in the crowd that day at Shechem, it's undoubted that we too would have readily agreed that we will follow the covenant, that we will obey everything that is written in the Torah, and become witnesses against ourselves. Joshua's damning condemnation on Israel's future failure is not unique, for all of us fail. And the fundamental problem is we serve a holy and jealous God, and we are unholy, adulterous creatures who prefer to cling desperately to our God's and our idols, and our sinfulness. For on the surface, they seem easier to serve. For on the surface, their demands seem less extreme. For on the surface, they seem to give us a greater rest than following the commands of God. But as Joshua has illustrated, there, serving the foreign gods comes with a great cost. And that cost is having your rest removed from being in the presence of God. And as the Israelites would experience, the nations quickly become a snare, a trap, a whip, and a thorn. Until hundreds of years later, when they're expelled from the land. And you'd think that, well, surely the Israelite spiral would happen hundreds of years into the future. Their failings happen within one generation of Joshua's death. Consequences of clinging to false gods and idols and sin is profound. 
Now, despite the good gifts God has given, all the promises that have been fulfilled, the cities that they didn't have to build, the, plant, the, the olive orchards and the vineyards they did not have to plant, they foolishly sought to find rest elsewhere. But are we no different? Despite all the promises that God has given, we too try to find rest elsewhere. Now, despite Joshua's warnings, he cannot bring change to that, to that generation in the future. Friends, it required the greater Joshua, the greater Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who in his life fulfills every good promise that God has given to us. But the critical difference with the true Joshua and the first Joshua is that when we fail to obey the commands of God, we are not expelled from the land. For the cost of disobedience was paid for at Calvary. Jesus Christ brings us the true rest. He brings us into the true promised land, not a piece of farmland in Canaan, but the restored heavens and the earth. And while that stone Joshua placed by that oak tree served as a memorial against Israel, a silent witness accusing them of their failure, while the burial of Joshua with his bones beneath the inheritance of his promised land found rest. For Christians, we have a stone memorial. But in that stone memorial, there are no bones. There is no death. There is only life. For the stone that Christians look to does not stand as a silent accuser, but a symbol of hope a symbol of victory, a symbol of overcoming death and sin. And it is a reminder of what the true Yeshua has done, created a people who will worship Yahweh, who will cling onto him, who despite our constant failures and fallings, we will not be expelled from the land. And friends, that is the book of Joshua. Joshua recounts a point in Israel's history where they entered the land, but also looks forward to a day in the future where we can find rest with Yahweh through the true Joshua that enables us to experience the presence of God as we go back to Eden. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Joshua and how despite its complexity and challenges, we see, Lord, it's at its heart about bringing your people into rest, bringing people into your presence of having a nation that serves you. And we thank you that we as Christians today, we sit with those promises that have been fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him, Lord, the true Joshua, that has paid the way for us. Lord, as we just explore judges into the future, Lord, we are reminded that you can overcome any evil, any obstacle. We thank you that it's because of Calvary and the empty tomb that we now stand with hope. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. 
For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.